You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, a lighthearted podcast that takes a revealing look at a career in the entertainment industry, featuring stories and conversations with those on stage and backstage, on screen and behind the scenes. To keep up with all the guests and episodes, go to the website, winmepodcast.com. There you will find ways to follow and connect via Twitter and Instagram, as well as ways to support and donate to this podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. Hello there, and welcome back to the podcast with Tony nominations out. Broadway is certainly abuzz with the latest shows and performances making all the headlines, and I hope you've been enjoying the Tony Awards bonus episodes here on the podcast, so check those out if you haven't already. But theater here in New York is obviously so much more than what happens on the Great White Way. There's important and significant work being done off-Broadway and by theater companies around the city. One such company is Leviathan Lab, and today I'm talking to Ariel Estrada, an actor, singer, arts advocate, a producer, and the founder of Leviathan Lab. Now, they are an award-winning, not-for-profit creative studio whose mission is the advancement of Asian and Asian-American performing artists and their work. Now, with Leviathan Lab, Ariel has produced acting and writing salons, cabarets, fundraising events, stage readings, showcase productions, and short films, including the award-winning film Two Weeks. And I am so grateful to have Ariel with me today. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Patrick, for bringing me onto the show. Absolutely. Now, Leviathan is celebrating 10 years, right? It is. This is this fall will be our 10th year in operation. Oh my gosh, we made it. <laughs> uh, and it is it's 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 still moving with its mission with helping emerging uh, Asian and Asian American artists. Uh, it has been um, a real joy to be doing it, and it's been <laughs> it's been also very hard. I bet, uh, creating I bet, yeah. theater in New York City is a very expensive venture, mm-hmm. and you know I basically have put my entire life savings into moving this forward because it's that important right. to me. Um, to tell you a little bit about the, sort of the origins of Leviathan, I. Um, originally started it uh, because there was a because I saw a need. There was a already a dearth of of opportunities for Asian and Asian American artists in the city, and um, the way that the the industry was moving uh, was that the the some of the major Asian American theaters that um, were starting to make the move to off Broadway contracts, and, and through that move, it shut a lot of people out that were that were either weren't equity or just out of school. And there was a real need for a company that was going to cater to those uh, those artists. Right? The artists that were just like starting out. Just or starting start, out. Right, just starting yeah. out. Like they just got their degrees, their BFAs, their MFAs uh, in the city. Uh, and this is not just actors, but this is playwrights and dramaturges and directors and, and technical artists as well. And they really needed a place to go, right? And this is, I'm proud to say that this is one of the, f- few companies that does this work. Um, there are more now. Uh, 
the wonderful work of Bayork Lee, uh, who is, uh, of course, uh, our wonderful Tony Award winner and one of our gems of the community. Um, a big, big fan of hers. Uh, with her company, National Asian Artist Project, I just saw a wonderful, wonderful um, show called Enda at New York Theatre Workshop next door by a company called Hypocrite Theatre Company, which has primarily South Asian uh, artists in their milieu. And it is... Um, it's a joy to see all that work because there's plenty of chances now for these artists to get their work and there's more artists consequently because of it. And so in those 10 years that Leviathan's been around, have you seen that growth really take off? I have at both yes and no. I guess that's the best <laughs> way to describe it. It is um, heartening, of course, we we'll see uh, a lot of the work that you know my mentors and their mentors did to uh, to move push the needle forward for Asian and Asian American artists. I'm, uh, of course, we're talking about uh, crazy rich Asians, and we're seeing much more representation both on stage and screen for Asian American artists. But and you know, and some people argue it's like, well, no, it's it's actually quote unquote balanced now because it it reflects the the population. If you go uh, if you believe that there's six, that Asians consist of six percent of the population uh, in the United States, um, then yeah, we're getting supposedly getting six percent of the work, or well, the latest statistics are more like three or four uh, percent representation on Broadway and off Broadway. You know, and it is frankly to me not enough. Right. No matter what what group you're talking about or, mm -hmm. or category of, of person, that th there shouldn't be like a quota system when it comes to who should be on stage or not on stage. There needs to be representation of of different different voices, different ways of life, different cultures, and that needs to represent the community a as a whole. Not 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 be like this percentage and that percentage. I pers I agree. Um, I agree. It's well. Unfortunately, it doesn't. It rarely works that way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? If there is that's, that's the ideal world. That's the course. ideal world, right? I mean, the quota system. It, well, there is a quota system. It just works in reverse. <laughs> it's mostly, uh, you know, it's there's a reason why they, we call them in the um, uh, in the in the arts administration field. We call them PWIs, primarily white institutions, mm. right? They are primarily white institutions. Um, it's changing. Of course, if uh, American Theater just released an article about um, the sea change that's happening in regional theaters right now, where there's much more representation for women and people of color in artistic leadership positions. And that's great. It's a step in the right direction. Still not far enough as far as I'm concerned. Um, I am have done some work with a arts presenter in Midtown uh, that does a lot of work for women and people of color. Uh, still, it's not enough. You know, I, I walk into those doors and it's mostly white people that I see. And I it's mostly does not represent me or my experience in there. Um, and this is their best attempt at trying to do that work. Right. right. And to be to their credit, they're doing that work. However, it's also reflecting the industry and it's affecting um, it's a, it's reflecting the. Hmm, well, I guess it's reflecting the the pressures in the industry to make money, right? That the people who have access and uh, to arts training have access to educations where they are taught to appreciate art, are taught to know that theater is something that's very worthwhile to be doing. Um, you know, any number of studies will will show you that uh, that it's important to uh, 
child's development to be exposed to the arts. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, they, yeah, and, yeah, they talk about how it really grows the mind and it helps you in areas of math and science because it really expands the, the way our, our minds think and how we kind of go outside the box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It also expands your, your uh, if you believe this term, emotional quotient. quotient. Um, I do. I, I think that there is definitely, I mean, actors usually are pretty good at that sort of thing, at least the, you know, at least most actors that I know. At least we can pretend. At least that. we can pretend <laughs> that we have a good emotional quotient. Um, I mean, but they really do. I mean, uh, so uh, we all have worked survival jobs to support our acting habit. And, you know, m- most of my act, my work, at least in be prior to the last six years, um, has been, uh, you know, working in corporate settings, in corporations. And most of the really sort of difficult people that I've met have not been in the theater. You know, <laughs> we always have that um, that stereotype of the difficult act, diva actor, right? And it's mostly difficult diva bankers <laughs> and real estate people and, and all the various um, jobs that I've had to do and I'm uh, to try to make it in this crazy city. Yeah, I, I was a runner at a law office, and I certainly had a, a lot of different personalities. Some some were very congenial and pleasant to work with, and others, it was their way or the highway, and that's all that mattered. Yep, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's you know, I mean, not to say you don't find that in theater. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've certainly met my fair share of artistic directors that are that way. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, just moving back to Leviathan real quick. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm really sort of trying to do with Leviathan and have done. I, I want to be a very different type of leader. I want to be a very, and I actively work to be that kind of leader where it's much more, I work for much more an egalitarian um, work ethic around there. I try to do really sort of live a, a bit of, I guess democracy is the best way to describe it, but it's much more, probably more commie socialist than any other way. But this, of course, but you know, but even you know, even with this, right, we're affected by the by the inherent capitalism that the industry is based on. You know, this is also something that's really hard to work on. I'm reading a book right now called "The The Revolution Will Not Be Funded," talking about how well the nonprofit system is really broken. Right, we spend most of our time fundraising. Right. Yeah. Rather than actually making the art and in this country. And, you know, you look at the European models of how they create art and it's so much more civilized. Right. One could argue it's like, well, the art isn't as good um, because they don't have that element of competition. I would vehemently argue against that. I think that the art that they create there is much more interesting and cutting edge than anything that we've produced here in the United States in years, even some of our um quote-unquote experimental places right it's and and a a lot of times in europe specifically in like london theater i know when i've read articles that compare the costs of a broadway production to a london production london productions are half or a third of the cost of of what it takes to get something on broadway so i mean there's there's not only the the art thriving there but it also isn't as expensive to take those risks Mm -hmm. it's much cheaper it's much less expensive and People can actually experiment, and artists get a chance to really grow. Um, the way that the system works here, when you're a young artist, right? You there is the there is this sort of myth of of well, I'm young, I can afford to make mistakes, and people will forgive me for it, and that's true. <laughs> that's true if you have a certain economic class, and and uh, and quite frankly, race, right? If you're white, straight, male, you get a lot more chances. 
Um, I know this is relatively common knowledge, but I'm just re- repeating it. You get, uh, especially, you know, sort of in our sort of circles of, of artists and uh, sort of lefty commie pinkos that we all hang out with, we all know that white straight men get way more chances than um, even a gay man or a gay white man or definitely than, definitely than women. And, you know, and if you're a person of color, you get no chances to make mistakes, right? Um, you know, one of the, the things that I've... That, we always hear in co- communities of color uh, uh, who are among the artists is like from casting directors is that we can't find those actors. We just they just didn't show up. Well, it's your job. It is your job to look for those actors. I could name a hundred actors off the top of my head, literally, of uh, of really talented people that I know. Right, and you can't find them. I never believe it. Yeah. I never believe it that you can't. It's <laughs> this is a bit of an off-color metaphor, but it's you know when you were young in New York, and um, and you could basically go anywhere and <clears throat> we get laid, and it was you know when you're young and pretty, and uh, and I, we used to make the joke that if you don't want to have sex in New York, if you don't if you're not having sex in New York, it's because you don't want to. Right, because you could find even if you have to pay for it, you can find it anywhere, right? And with casting directors, if you can't find a, a quote unquote talented actor of color in your uh, in New York, then you're not looking because you don't want to, right? Is you really that there are if, other concerns in mind, and usually they have to do with money. Exactly, right? because it's one thing if you're like in you know in in the Midwest, if you're in the middle of the country and you can't find a certain demographic or certain ethnicity, then it's like, okay, they may not be in your community. But New York is the largest city and one of the most, if not the most diverse city in the US. Mm-hmm. And if you can't find it here, then as you said, then that just means you're not looking. Right, exactly. Um, now, I mean, with the work that I've done and the work that my mentors and my and now there's this sort of plethora of of uh, Asian American companies in town, and I had a colleague of mine, wonderful friend that I've worked with for years in the company, um, and he he mentioned the other day, do we have too many? Are there too many Asian American companies that we're all scrambling for that little piece of the pie, um, that little sort of pathetic piece of the pie from from sort of city, state, and, and federal funding that we're all fighting for? And I go, you know, I'm not going to even play that game. <laughs> I refuse to play that game. Yes, there are tons of, of actors in town, and yes, there are a lot of companies, and yes, we can now use, use them to, f- there's still not enough work for any of them, right? I'm not working all the time. <laughs> I wish that I could say that I was. The only way, that, well, that's not true. I am working all the time, but it's usually stuff that I'm creating. Right, right. right. It's, it's not necessarily going to bring in a lot of money, but right. it, but you're constantly busy working, whether it's the fundraising, whether it's, you know, promoting mm-hmm. your own acting career mm-hmm. and all Writing that. my own work, writing my, right. uh, writing grants for various companies that I'm doing. You know, one of the things that I'm, that I've had to do uh, as an actor of color in the city, particularly of my generation, um, was, you know, I had to learn a lot of other skills just to get, get by, just to survive, right? And like I mentioned those corporate jobs before, right? Well, I kept, I leveraged all that knowledge into, into the company, uh, to the Leviathan. I leveraged all that knowledge into my own acting career. Um, I, Leverage that knowledge to try to learn to write grants, to write proposals, to get money. What business sense do you think that really propelled you in your own acting career as a business as well as Leviathan? What what 
essential ingredients did you take from the business world and put it into your art? Uh, marketing, marketing specifically, like learning to <laughs> learning to use those those horrible, horrible, clunky um, email marketing tools, um, keeping getting, keeping track of your expenses, of making sure that, and this is true even if you're an actor just running your own business, keep track of the expenses, <laughs> keep track of how much things are costing and like what is what is going in and what's going out, right? You, of course, you're going to find, especially when you're a young actor, is that you're investing a lot of money into your career um, without a lot of, of material or... Um, uh, material or artistic or, or monetary success, but then eventually that changes. Uh, if you, unless you know, unless you're completely without talent, and <laughs> completely without talent, or completely without discipline, I mean, there is a niche somewhere out there for you. I think in this business. That said, um, people have ac- more access and opportunities than others. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm, uh, I. I'm never going to have Tellerly Young's career, for example. I'm just not as talented as he is, right? Or beautiful as he is. He's just, and also just hell of a nice guy. Um, I'm also a nice guy, but <laughs> I, I'm, could, I can say I'm not as nice as he is. He's just truly one of the a gem of a person, um, you know. But I, I'm not going to have his career, right? And I'm not going to try <laughs> even to have his career. Um, you know, I'm going to have my own career. And if I have any advice to give any young actor. It's to, you know, try not to compare yourself to other, to your, um, to people around you, to your peers, right? You're going, your career will follow the path that it takes. I will say that, yes, you can <laughs> compare your career to people whose types are, who are very successful and who are similar to yours, right? Um, I mean, anybody who's taken a marketing class for actors will probably know that exercise of like, you know, of trying to find your type and all that, right, all right. that silly non- nonsense, um, which is actually very accurate and true. It's just it can be slightly off-putting to know that you are seen as a commodity, right, or seen as a product, but you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we because the thing is, like, when you walk into a room, when I walk into a room, you know, people see a certain thing that they they, they make judgments about how old we are, about what we do, about what what type we can play. I mean, some people might call it bias, but part of it is just the inherent, when we don't know someone and we see them, what what are our initial judgments of that, right. of, of, of that person? Right. And, and if, like if you, if any of you, I'm sure um, many of your listeners are taking audition classes and know that like, you know, you're going to lose the, or win the job in the, literally in the first five seconds when you walk in the room. So much of it is not in your control. Um, yeah, you know. I've, I've heard that, that when, when we walk into a room, they have a certain judgment, and the next 90 seconds for audition are, are basically our way of either confirming or surprising them. Right. It, it, it's, it's one or the other. I'm going to just go back a little bit and give a little backstory. I moved here back in 1997. Um, and I was this young hotshot with this degree from the third best acting school in the country at the time. Um, it's not anymore, but <laughs> it was um, from the University of Washington. And I was really arrogant and thought that I, you know, that, of course, I'm going to get tons of work. Well, haha, life has a way of sort of giving you the lessons that it needs. And, of course, the lesson that I got was like, no, you you don't. <laughs> you don't. Um, you're not as much of a hot shot as you think you are. And, wow, you're in a much bigger pool. And I would sort of wanted that, to be fair. I wanted that. I had just come from Seattle. I'd sort of hit a ceiling there. 
uh, and I was either going to stay there with uh, with the love of my life, who, whose heart I broke to you know, to uh, to date New York instead. Uh, and it's uh, and still so sad about that. <laughs> and twenty uh, you know twenty two years later, because um, he was just a wonderful guy. Um, and but I really wanted to see if I could make it in New York, and I moved here. Uh, thinking that I'm going to take this place by storm. And of course, it, reality set in. And like, I'm going to have to get a job. I have to pay off my student loans. And I have to do something, right? And, you know, and then also some of my own limitations, the things that I didn't understand as a young actor um, that weren't in my control. My height, how I sound, you know, what my chemistry is like on stage, well, primarily with women, right? Because I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly the most masculine guy in the world, so I'm not going to be seen um, as a as a romantic lead. And then Asians in general are not seen as romantic leads anyway. So at least back then, and definitely not, it's different now, but um, it's changed for the better now. But it back then, definitely, I was never going to be considered for that kind of type of role. So all those things that were not in my control, I didn't quite understand, right? And I took it personally, and I gave up. I gave up. I did a show at Lincoln Center, and I I had um, a rough time on that show for all of those reasons that I mentioned. And also was like, my God, I just I got this off Broadway salary, which was the most I'd ever been paid at that point. Uh, was the most I'd ever been paid as an actor. I instantly took all that money that I saved that had, didn't go into student loans, <laughs> and I went uh, to the new school and I got a degree in um, a certificate in uh, graphic design at the urging of a friend of mine who was also a graphic designer. I had just done a brochure and I think Microsoft Publisher or something. And way, way back when. Way back when. <laughs> it was for a martial arts class that I was taking at the time. And uh, and I just said, here, Master Young, here's a, a brochure for the, for the Tai Chi class that I designed for you. And she was a graphic designer, my friend Dory. And she said, you should think about getting a certificate or some, or some tra- formal training in this. is pretty good. I thought that this was done professionally. And I go, I just did it in publisher. And she goes like, that's really good. And I took her word at at her word. And I took that money, immediately went and got this graphic design uh, certificate. And it changed my life. Um, it was the Clinton years, so you could throw a stone and get a job. Uh, and I immediately got a job as a junior designer at Colgate Palmolive. Oh, wow. Um, and it was, and for some ways, it was a very ideal job because I was still, even though I'd quit the business, I was also still going out on auditions during the day. It was a part-time job with benefits. So it gave me, uh, at least for the next four years, it gave me the ability to go out for auditions, come back to the office. And eventually, you know, 9-11 happened and uh, and then the downturn happened um, immediately following that. Got laid off from there, but I was able to find another job immediately in another company for a health um for the company that I was doing personal training for, because I was also doing personal training and teaching aerobics classes, and um, was using that, the, both of those things to sort of fund headshots. And, you know, of course, back then, you had to spend a lot of money on headshots because people they were not moving things digitally at that point, right? And I still had a stack of headshots at home. Um, Which is crazy because now that it's all, all digital, headshots are even more than they used to be. Yes. It's, oh, it's it, kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, even though it's all digital and, and nobody actually takes your headshots anymore, <laughs> uh, I, I, my headshot, my stack of headshots now are so old, I have to get new ones because these ones just don't look like me anymore. And I just got them done, um, three, two and a half, two years ago. Um, so I thought that I 
Well, and I aged quite a bit since then. So yeah, um, yeah we all just keep getting older. Yeah, it, <laughs> it just... didn't help that I was producing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, but all of these things. I mean, and if you asked me earlier about like other things that really helped me along, that graphic design degree changed my life. Right. It's still I still use it. Um, you know, I'm I'm uh, was employed re- most recently. I was employed by a. Uh, by an arts presenter in Midtown that I'd mentioned earlier, right? And I used those skills as a designer constantly. I'm about to use them again because <laughs> I'm about to go back into, after working um, in the nonprofit world for the last six, seven years now. Um, uh, it's so funny that the um, podcast is titled Why I'll Never Make It. Well, I have an answer for you for that. <laughs> it's because it implies that the game has an end. True, right? True. Yeah, and that the well, well, business well there is that end. goal. There is that. There is that that end game that we're all trying to trying to reach. You know, and it's I, different for everyone. I think it's different for everybody. But for me, it's sort of I'm just looking at my life in the arts, sort of like looking back, sort of at the past twenty two years here. Um, it's never been about. Uh, it's much more, and this is true. If, if for my colleagues who have made it on Broadway, or for my colleagues who have gotten who've gotten even farther than that into getting into network shows, right? And not just colleagues, friends. I mean, these are people that I've worked with and then when when we were all young and starting out ourselves, right? And they've made it. Some of them have made it sort of in the commercial sense with TV shows, right? Well, I've made it too, but I've done a very different path. And I've also made it, quote unquote, in spite of some of the challenges that I had getting there, there, right? I'm a man of a certain age now, I'm 50, right? And of, and there's any number of, of challenges that I've been through. We were, you know, my generation were starting to get more opportunities thanks to the work of people like Ralph, my mentors, uh, Nikki Paraiso and Ralph Pena and Mia Katingbach, right? These are also, and, and Tisa Chong, these are all sort of giants in the New York uh, Asian American scene. And, you know, thanks to their work, I was able to move a little bit further, right? But that little bit further was certainly not as far as some of people that I see now, like my friend Daniel K. Isaac, network star, now on a network series regular on a network show, Vince Rodriguez on a hit show. You know, and these are people that I've known since they were very young in the industry. And that kind of gets back to to that competition that Mm -hmm. that we were, you know, about not trying to compare yourself to other people and right. and did you find that that was that was something very difficult to to not do I mean it wouldn't be I would be lying to you to, if I said said that it doesn't affect me right it of course it affects me right I'm a human being right there's jealousy just like I feel jealousy just like everybody else and envy just like everybody else right but I can control how that how, what I do with that jealousy or envy, right? I can decide to be happy for them and go, hey, isn't it great that the work that we did prepared the way for these guys so, and, these, and these gals <laughs> so that they could uh, get their commercial success, right? Because it wasn't that long ago. It didn't matter how talented you were. It didn't matter how talented you were. You know, it, you just would not, there's only so far you could have gone. Hmm. Right. right. And there's, you know, and that generation, of course, still struggles. Right. They get, you know, uh, all those all those folks in my generation, if they made it as far as Broadway. Right. They still, you know, they very few of them became stars. Right. So maybe one or two. We've got Jose. We've got Jose Lana. We've got um, 
uh, we've got BD Wong, right? And and this is uh, in comparison to like how many Asian American people who have really sort of that you can say are sort of household names, at least far as far enough. Uh, and Paulo um, and Paulo Montalban, there's another name um, of someone who's made it, right? Now there's much more oppor- there's much more ability and opportunity for that to happen. As far as I'm concerned, it's not enough. You can always do more, sure, right? Because sure. I am, I will never stop working for that. Um, that is my, it's been my life's work. Um, I will say that I will change it, um, that my way of doing things have changed. I'm actually in the middle of a big sea change right now. Um, that, that, that first big step of when I started working at the Met and I met chief digital officer there, you know, there was a major round of layoffs and I eventually left there, but my work in the nonprofit sector did not end. I mean, I'd always been doing work for Leviathan, right? But but at that point, you know, leveraging what I'd learned at the Met and uh, and through all the various jobs I'd worked in marketing over the years, by that point, I was learning how to write grants and write proposals and try to get money for my art, right? And I had, at my highest point there, I had about eight grant writing clients, which was crazy. I should have never had that many grant writing clients because it's by that point, plus having my own acting career, plus having my a full-time job, plus doing all these side hustles um, for um, for helping other arts organizations to get money. It, it, it was too much. It was too much. And my own work was starting to suffer. Um, so, so with this grant writing, which is a, a, a big part of your your life, especially in, in nonprofit, is that by that you mean that you create a proposal and you reach out to a company, hey, please give us this money for X, Y, and Z. This is what we're going to use the money for. Can you give it? Is yes, that basically what exactly. The, okay. Although I've mostly been doing city and neighborhood grants, right? And so reaching out to, to city governments, city or government orga- and organizations, exactly. You know, and I'd also done a commercial at that point. A national commercial, and I pumped all that money into Leviathan, investing into doing two showcases at that point. Um, uh, by now, uh, by now we've done about two major showcases, both cost, uh, so staggering forty-two thousand dollars each. Um, you know, so it was. You know, these <laughs> these are expensive, yeah. right? Forty-two thousand yeah. dollars does not sound like a lot compared to even the budget for your average off-Broadway show, which is three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars, and if <laughs> <laughs> pales in comparison to the millions to Broadway, and millions yeah. of Broadway, right? But you were talking about artists who are living at the poverty level. Forty-two thousand dollars might as well be forty-two million dollars to uh, art to the uh, types of artists that I'm working with, right? Who are at the beginning, very beginning of their career, or you know, very often people of color, right? Who don't have those type of of or artists of color who don't have that type of opportunities. And the only way they're going to work is if they're if you're creating showcases for them, or if you're doing stuff that's basically for them who are going to be that maybe if you're lucky, um, and you estimated thirty percent of an audience fill of ninety nine seats, right? You're lucky if three hundred people went and saw it, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and it's just mostly for the practice of doing it, right? Because you're either going to spend the money going to class, or you're going to spend the money doing it, um, creating your own work, and that, that, you know. that is true. I hadn't thought of it like that. If you're going to spend these hundreds and hundreds of dollars yourself on on classes, training, and and different things, then there's something to be said for putting that money and pooling it with others to then just create your own work, exactly. create your own art. You know, and at that point, uh, from from that major museum job, I went to another nonprofit, the Asian American Arts Alliance. Um, which was a godsend for me in terms of, of working in a field that I really wanted to, for a mission that I really believed. Uh, 
you know, and I love those folks over there. Um, but like every small nonprofit, it just, I just could not survive on that, on what the money that they were paying, right? It was a part-time position. I just couldn't afford to live the life that I could, am accustomed to and need, quite frankly, as an artist, right? We have, uh, of course, the, the stereotype of like starving artists and there's a real sort of romance around it. There's nothing romantic about being poor, Mm-mm. period. There is absolutely nothing being romantic about being poor. And the fact that most artists have to live that way, right? Uh, Conrad Bricamora, um, wonderful, wonderful artist, wonderful guy, right? When he first got cast in How to Get Away with Murder, right? And it was like a huge, he was, it was, he was so grateful and everything. But he also wrote this post about like how he would have to, how he'd spent his first couple of years in New York, just like jumping from people's couches and like trying, really sort of suffering. And he'd made it. He did make it, right? But that's not true of everybody, right? And he has, and of course, he's just a, like a very physically beautiful human being on top of being very talented, right? So that gives him more, and tall, right? So this gives him these th- these wonderful advantages that I certainly don't have. I've made it in terms of what I can, what I, uh, within my own limitations of what I, I have to work with, right? I'm never going to be tall. <laughs> Maybe if right, I took some right. growth hormone. And, then, and the thing but, is, like, I've I've always seen it as whatever whatever body type you are, that these these un, unchangeable characteristics about us. That right, I'm never going to get cast as the short character. Right. You know that that's that's just not going. I'm not going to be the sidekick. But there are other people who can fill those roles as fun and and comedic and you know wonderful as those kind of roles would be. Exactly. But, yeah. And so I I do like that about theater and the fact that there are so many niches that each of us can can fall into mm-hmm. and fortunately over the last you know 10 20 years now ethnicity is starting and diversity is starting to play a part in that as well and and the the casting director's visions are starting to widen out a thank lot god. more than they used to thank god i mean it's been even as recently as 2 years ago i think it was it was actually 3 years ago i went to a casting panel um, that was sponsored by the Asian American Arts Alliance, actually. And it was right actually before I started working for them. Um, and one of the casting directors was just sort of being very equivocal and hemming and hawing about the lack of diversity in the show that they were casting. And and she basically punted and she goes like, it's not our fault. It's the producer's fault, right? And she's not wrong. She wasn't wrong. Right. The people and then we're coming back down to money again. Right. What is, you know, who gets the opportunities and who decides who gets those opportunities. Right. During that time, after, while I was, you know, doing a deep dive into sort of the arts administration part of my career, I ended up I took the emerging producers program at the Broadway League. Right. Um, in the Commercial Theater Institute. And it was there that I learned forever and ever that I would never, ever want to go into commercial theater ever um, to be as a producer, ever. Because their priorities are, well, it confirmed all my priorities. <laughs> or it confirmed all my suspicions about what their priorities were. One of our assignments was to go see If Then, and I loved it. I adored it. Right, I thought that right. there was, it was a great show. I, I remember was, watching that. Oh, yeah. It was a fantastic show, right? And it was, you know, it was, and it's a new American musical. They were really trying to, to do something different and kind of daring that was like, oh, thank God it's not another My Fair Lady. And they were doing something new, right? And then the next week when I went into class, I was the only one who liked it. And everybody else 
And bear in mind that most of the people in this emerging producers class, the vast majority of them, there were, there were notably there was at least one person who was an actor who went over two, um, who went over from being a actor and uh, uh, to over to the producer side and commercial production, um, and but the rest were bankers and lawyers and doctors and some tech people who'd made their pile and retired early and wanted to have fun taking enormous risks with their money being Broadway producers, right? And they all hated the show because they said, why on earth did they produce something so commercially, that would be so commercially unsuccessful or commercially unviable? Hmm. And, Interesting. And meanwhile, yeah. mere weeks before, when we were all introducing each other, these were all, all these doctors and lawyers and tech people and bankers who were, who were escaping out of their businesses with their piles of money, um, had just said, "Oh, I want to do something artistic with my life and do something now that I've now that I'm in a position now where I can d- do something other than banking or or etc. I can do something really interesting with my money and spread art, right? And they all just, but they all all those same people until they realize that it's not going to make them the money. Yeah, bingo, yeah. right? And it's like you are no artists." You're yeah. just here for the money. And I said, this sucks. And I said, because I was appalled. It may seem a bit naive of me to have made that realization at that moment. But like, oh, Broadway isn't about art. <laughs> Broadway is just about making money. I mean, that, 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 that's one of the things that I learned uh, from, from doing a couple of national tours. And one of them was a, it was a CETA contract, which a few years back was, was under a lot of uh, controversy, especially among among us actors, for the for the low pay, the the poor working conditions, about sending us out on the road, and and how it wasn't much better than a, a non equity contract. But producers were getting a lot of, of flack for it, and 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 a lot of the blame. Some of it justified, others I, I didn't think was justified. There, there's a place for people who who are worried about making money because when something makes money then you can do more of it and so if producers are making money they can produce more and the more work they produce the more opportunity you know it becomes a trickle effect so there there is advantages to making something that makes money but at the same time if that's all you want to do then then you're right then art theater is not where you want to be. I mean, because most shows do not recoup their money, mm-hmm. especially especially once you go down into off-Broadway and below mm-hmm. and into more nonprofit work and other mm-hmm. things like that. It's not going to make money. It's there to make a difference. It's not there to make a profit. Exactly. I am at a crossroads. I. It's not been great being this poor doing all uh in fact you know it's been horrible being this poor (laughs) i'm working this mission is hard right and i it's taken its toll on my health it's taken its toll on my career it's taken its toll on my personal relationships this is hard work it's not a place for the faint of heart right right and it is time for me to make a little bit of a change uh i'm wanting to focus more back in my acting career and, and quite frankly start doing some of the work for me right um this is i'm still uh, of course i'm deeply involved in advocacy and i always will be um i think because i think there's just in, as long as there's racism in the world i will always be deeply involved in advocacy because i just it's just who i am i'm a, a fighter and i've always have been and but now it's time to be an advocate for yourself it's time to be fighting for myself a little bit right 
I'm on staff for uh, CADA, which is the Consortium of Asian American Theaters and Artists, a nationally based organization that promotes uh, Asian American artists and, uh, and Asian American theaters, right? And I'm very happy to be doing that type of work. But again, I'd be lying if I didn't say it wasn't hard to see my colleagues working and not me, right? So I'm making a little shift in trying to balance out the work that I do for others yeah. versus the work that I do for me. And I think that's a balance that we all have to find because we certainly want to, you know, whether we're a writer, director, actor, we, 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 we all want our own careers to have, have their path. But at the same time, I, th- I think especially in theater, we all have a desire to work with others and make sure others are, are getting to work with us and, and, and finding those opportunities to gather the best people together and, and produce, whether it's new work or a classic work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in, quite often in positions of leadership, right, it is leadership's very lonely. It's a lonely place, mm-hmm. right, because you have you're doing so much work for others. You have to be. There's a, an element of selflessness to it. There's also very few people that you can actually um, commiserate with. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of a leadership program, um, both with Theater Communications Group and with another leadership program uh, for uh, emerging arts leaders uh, through New York Foundation for the Arts, right? And if there's anything I'm learning in those either of those programs, it's about alignment, Right. And this is true for your listeners who are actors, right? It's important to be aligned with your own wants and needs. If you want to truly make it, if you want to answer that question in the title of the podcast, you will ne- you have to be aligned with your own desires and wants first, right? And one of my sort of my journey in this whole time of doing that I've that's brought me to this point, I think has to. You know, my first impulse is to always, like a good Catholic boy, (laughs) is to always think of others first, right? And, you know, and this is, wow, we're really getting deep into it a little bit, but it's partly about being raised Asian in this country and being, and sort of culturally where I'm at as a Filipino man, a Filipino gay man, right? These are all, all these things affect my work and they affect my career and most um, to my detriment, hmm. the way that it's affected my career is putting others ahead of my others' needs in front of my own, because I felt this need to um, atone, atone for being gay, atone for being just taking up space in the room as a man of color, right? And this uh, atoning for survive being one of the people of of my generation who survived the AIDS crisis, right? And all of these things I'm coming to realize, particularly through this leadership training and particularly through my experiences working in nonprofits over the, year, over the last six, seven years, um, <laughs> putting, your, putting others' needs ahead of your own is not a sustainable business model. <laughs> true. I, I mean, <laughs> not to be flippant about it. No, but, no, but, but there's, there's something to be said for things that make us wonderful human beings that really contribute to not only our lives but the lives of others isn't always what's going to do the best for us as a artist, business person, actor trying to, you know, sustain a living. Exactly. And, you know, so I'm, I'm moving towards creating the space to do my own work. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I've been working on my own solo performance piece for the last two years, and I'm actually going to be performing it as uh, 
um, as part of a festival in, in June for the um, for for Pride Month and the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Um, I'm thrilled to be doing that work because it's deeply personal. Um, I, I there's probably not a lot of time to touch on in this podcast, but uh, I'm a cult survivor. That's also one of the things that I did during my off time uh, when I was out of the business for a while, you know, and I'm writing about that experience of how I survived that and how and touch, touching a little bit about like that sort of uh, this horrible confluence of both survivor syndrome and uh, imposter syndrome that conflated in sort of where I am in my career and where I am in my life as an artist. And you know, it's, I, I couldn't, I, as I started writing the piece, I realized I couldn't start I couldn't not talk about racism. I couldn't not talk about homophobia. I couldn't not talk about those things because those are the main thing, some of the two of the most uh, intense forces that you can possibly imagine and negative forces you can possibly imagine. And to say that that did not affect my career and my opportunities within my career would be disingenuous to not say that. You know, I was on Facebook the other day and there was a discussion about the latest racist thing that happened in the casting room. And uh, not surprisingly, some white person um, came up and made fun of the entire thread and said like, oh, look at people blaming their own shortcomings on outside forces. And to their credit, they immediately blocked her and shamed (laughs) her and completely made fun of her, frankly, racist crap. Look, this is, this is uh, and and this is a question from from an outsider lo- mm-hmm. looking looking at the the person of color issues and mm-hmm. and racism as you say. But how much of it is the, there's actual racism, which I do not deny, and then there's also those who maybe want to use it as as an excuse. How much do you think there there is a balance of that, and do you think that that the two coexist or one is more than the other i don't this is just a question you're asking a person of color (laughs) yeah yeah Um, i know that's that's why i want to know the only i'm going to challenge i'm going to push back on you on that for that for for that uh, on that change change the tone change the perspective of that question from race to feminism and then ask would you say that to a woman who would be who is using rape or um misogyny to their advantage and then it starts to give perspective to that question if whether a person of color is using racism or uh, or racist acts that have happened to them to their advantage in their career right i'm always going to believe the survivor i'm always going to believe the victim right which they are unequivocally are right does that mean there aren't people who do do that? I mean, all we have to do is look at Jesse Smollett, right? Right. 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 And you know, although he was cleared, parent supposedly, um, but are there people who do that? Probably. Uh, am I going? Is that the first thing I'm going to believe about them? No. No. Speaking like speaking as someone who has plenty, unfortunately, of of who have had plenty of white people in my life. Um, and again, this is sort of part of my own survivor and imposter syndrome stuff that I deal with in every, any given day, right? I've known and been very close to people and am extremely close to someone right now. I'm dating somebody right now that I seem to be have this pattern where I date these people who don't believe that racism happens to me. No, you, oh, uh, you know, that their first question, if I'm followed in a store, isn't, are you okay? 
their first question is, what did you do hmm. to trigger it? I need less people of those of that like that in my life, <laughs> and I need more allies in my life, right? And I'm just challenging you that that question, and I know you're super woke. <laughs> you're super woke, but there is... Well, it's, it's, it's more of a question that I see out there. And, and yes. so, and so, you know, with, as you said, you know, there's the, the Brett Kavanaugh situation from last year, the Jesse Smollett thing, which mm-hmm. just happened. You, you, you get these conflicting narratives of what you think happened, what did happen, what might have happened. And, and so I think a lot of people look at, they, they look at the issue of racism and at least most people thankfully don't deny it. But then they, but then they try to figure out well, what does it mean and how is it actually affecting people. And I think that that's that that's the the, the larger question. Right. That once we answer that, then we can deal with it. Right. You know, it's it's so funny. Have you seen White Noise over at the Public? I haven't. I haven't oh, yet. My God, everybody everybody should see it. It's so good. Um, David Diggs is killing it. If he doesn't get if he doesn't get like every award in existence for what he's doing in that show, uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God because <laughs> he's that good. And that play is that good. And it's so fun. I sat up, you know, up in the nosebleed seats with all the other poor actors. And, uh, I, but it was really fun because part of the fun was like looking at everybody in the audience squirming um, because the play is so uncomfortable. Right. And talks about race in a way that is just, wow, I wish pe- more people would talk about. And mm. like you're, we're talking about, right now right what does it what does it mean to start looking at some of these gray areas of allyship versus versus people who are not allies right versus enemyship right and you know where is the you know where is the gray as we're trying to work out some of these issues and it's not just about race it's also about it's also in the me too movement that we're working in now right right i was just in a situation where i had to do deal with something very similar in my own work and it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And like my, my, um, you know, the person that I'm dating right now is, was very critical of me. Um, and they, and they basically, uh, and he was, he basically said that there was like, you are, uh, are contributing to the hysteria of the moment. Why aren't you, why aren't you placing, why, where's the proof? Where is the proof in this situation? You're just basically going off somebody's word, and you're you are you are corrupting the rule of law. And and I go, what rule of law? The rule of law has been been not, done nothing but but denigrate women. It's done nothing but denigrate pe- people of color to the advantage of white straight people. So why on earth should I pay any attention to to the rule of law? And you know, and of course I should pay attention to the rule of law because otherwise we wouldn't have society and it would be anarchy. However, that doesn't mean we can't fight against stuff that is unequivocally wrong, mm-hmm. right? And we're in a difficult moment because what does that mean, right? And, you know, there's people, are, then people are going to get hurt, right? And this includes, and I, including me, <laughs> who's an ally to to uh, women and tra- to both to women and trans causes. And, and it's going to be true of my, the person I'm dating at the moment because there's only so much I'm going to be able to keep taking that before he, I won't be dating him much longer, <laughs> right? It's, um, you know, and I've had friends who are people of color who have broken up with their white, um, white significant others because it's just like, I cannot take their lack of wokeness anymore, right? I cannot take the fact that they're blaming, all, blaming a racist situation on me, hmm. What did you right. wear? What? How are you acting in the moment? 
were you acting deferent enough? Like literally, that's what they're asking. Are you, are you acting deferent enough? Right. Hmm. And if I'm going to answer the question why I'll never make it, it's because I'm a rabble rouser. <laughs> I am never not going to say screw you to somebody who is asking me to be deferent. And at the same time, I've dealt with those issues in my career and it has held me back. Right? I've dealt with those own, own issues in my heart of choosing situations where have kept me not moving my own career forward or moving my own work forward, right? So this is really complicated. No, and, and so I, I, I appreciate yeah. you being being open. And it right. sounds like that this one-person show that, you, that you're writing about your life is going to touch on a lot of these, exactly. these issues and a lot of these, uh, these outside forces which have acted on your own life and mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. And it ended up me joining a cult because... Where else am I going to have? Because you're looking for a place. Yeah. You're looking for a, a belonging. A belonging, you know? a place where I could be accepted, a place yeah. where I didn't have to like deal with these, uh, I didn't have to deal with, with racism or homophobia or anything, a place where I felt safe, yeah. essentially, right? And, you know, there's white noise actually is very similar to that. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything about it because you just have to go see it. Yeah. But yeah. Davi Diggs' character creates a situation where he can feel safe. Right. And it is... It's really tough. intense. It's tough. <laughs> yeah, and it's a really well, intense way that he creates, and much, li- and and that's how I. I mean, very similarly, I create. I created the situation where I could be safe, where I could protect myself from the disappointments of the of, of, quite frankly, of things that were out of my control, right? Which is one of the reasons that I created Leviathan in the first place. I never wanted a young actor to ever go through that. Right. 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 To have all this talent and all this training and all this time that they have spent, putting into their career. And to see their white, use it. and never use it, and yeah. to see their white colleagues move forward, right, and not have a place to make, put in their thousand hours and make the horrible mistakes, where they will be forgiven and they can do it again, right. I usually, when you're working with young actors or young artists, they are usually going to make some horrible mistake, sometimes more than once in a day, right. And you have to be very forgiving, right, because it's like okay, they're young. They don't know. And they didn't realize they did either insulted someone or did something that was completely out of protocol or did something that was completely insulting to another artist or whatever, you know, or whatever. Or they're like, God, they just destroyed $300 worth of equipment. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so, you know, some of us are, are, are still learning those things. You exactly. Know, about, you know, what our words and actions can, uh, can do. Exactly. Well, tell people where they can uh, find you and find this, uh, this show that you'll be doing sure. in June. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be doing the show as part of Pride Fest at the Tank. Uh, that's at three. 12 West 36th Street. Uh, it's going to be performing on uh, Thursday and Friday, the 27th and 28th of June, I believe. Uh, it's directed by Andrew Borthwick Leslie, wonderful, wonderful artist um, that I worked with a couple times. Um, and also Sheila Bandia Podhai, um, also a wonderful artist who works over at ADA. And uh, it's just a two-night workshop of it. Um, come see me make my glorious mistakes up there as I test this material out. Love it, love it. Well, Ariel, thank you so much. This has been a, a really enlightening and uh, personal conversation. I really appreciate you you coming on the show. Thank you. To learn more about Ariel, you can go to my website, winmepodcast.com. There you'll see all the details and links of how you can find him and know more about his show. 
Also on the website, you can find a link to help support my efforts in producing this weekly podcast. More importantly, if you enjoy listening to these stories and interviews as much as I love being a part of them, then please share this podcast with those who you think would enjoy and benefit from these conversations. As always, thank you for joining me and Ariel today. Don't miss a single episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll see you next time on Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.